0: What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. The Deep Trouble Podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at TroubleMag.com. Thanks for
1: listening. It's time for Deep Trouble again. I'm Steve Charman. And once again, I'm with Dr. Mark Halloran. Conversing via the wonders of Zoom. we have got a great interview for you today, or you always do have. It's a bit of a follow-on from last week, Anthony Dillon. It's almost like a, a response to it. Well, it's the other side of the debate, I suppose. I think that the problem and what we're
0: trying to overcome with the series to some extent is discussing things with people and not assuming that they're coming from a place of bad faith.
1: Yep, exactly right. Let's hope that's the case. I also think that in drawing attention to the differing opinions of well-intentioned people that we're shining a light on deep conceptual divides between various ideologies By doing so, you reveal something about the very structures of human thought, how we make sense of the world.
0: Yeah, well, that was what the series was supposed to be about, I suppose, that it was about trying to understand the way that people understand themselves and the world. And that varies.
1: It does too. All right. Let's talk about some of the issues that arise in today's interview. People are going to be quite impressed with Professor Thalia Anthony. She's very articulate knows her stuff yes professor thali
0: anthony's expertise is in the areas of criminal law and procedure and indigenous people and the law with a particular specialization in indigenous criminalization and indigenous community justice mechanisms i discovered her work through reading several articles that she's written for the conversation in regards to the black lives matter movement here in australia or the Indigenous Lives Matter movement.
1: Her most recent book, Decolonising Criminology Imagining Justice in a Post Colonial World, co written with Harry Blagg, who's a professor of criminology mm. in Western Australia. In fact, the interview was so rich that we're going to provide our listeners with an extended podcast. So, the Deep Trouble podcast will have about another 15 minutes of material. Some
0: listeners may find some of the issues that we discuss distressing and also that aboriginal and torres strait islander listeners should be made aware that the names of aboriginal and torres strait islander people who are now deceased are mentioned in the interview all right
1: okay well without any further ado as i want to say let's have a listen to you dr mark halloran in conversation with professor thalia anthony
0: Professor Thalia Anthony, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much, Mark.
0: Recently, we've seen Scott Morrison apologise for denying that Australia had any sort of history of slavery. Uh, He had to backtrack on that. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were around that in terms of our history and also the ideas around reparations.
2: Yeah, it's really good that you asked both because I think until we get our history right, it's really difficult to move to the necessary phase of addressing reparations. My thoughts about Scott Morrison's initial comments, which denied that slavery existed here, were really whitewashing a lot of the history we have in Australia in relation to our treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as well as South Sea Islander people and other minorities, Chinese people and other groups that, tend to be whited out of our history that only focuses on, you know, particularly British settlers that came here. And that's not to say that as, for instance, convicts, they were given fair conditions because we know the criminal justice system can be excessively harsh. But I think by denying slavery, he was denying a narrative that speaks to the practices of how especially First Nations people were treated. And this was labour and employment practices that spanned over a century. So from about the, well, in Perling, it began in the early 1800s and then for the cattle industry where they were heavily employed, it lasted from about the 1860s to the 1950s in Australia And there they were not only exploited for their labor, but equivalent to slavery, they were owned in their entire being. So the employer had control over their marriage, over their relationships, over where they moved, over how they spent their money if they got any, really, they did in their employment. So these were whole-scale powers that were also state-sanctioned under the Aboriginal Protection Acts, where the um, employer could, with the permission of the Aboriginal protector under the Acts, could employ as many Aboriginal workers as he saw fit and treat them with all the powers under the Aboriginal Protection Acts. So it was really far-reaching in terms of the controls, so when you talk about reparations, I think there's still a lot of work to be done with stolen wages because many of them were not paid. And when I went up to Kalkarinji and um, Dagaragu and Lajamanu, which are right in the Tanamai Desert in Australia, some of the old people were still with living memories of these experiences and still wanting their stories to be told, but also wanting the wages that have been denied to them and kept them in poverty as a result of that denial being intergenerational really and you know explains I think why our nation's so rich because many of these cattle corporations profited and yet Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people remain so poor.
0: So the reparations are essentially directly to the people who either experienced that injustice or the family members of the people who were descendants of that injustice as well?
2: Yeah, when we've looked at um, reparation schemes, and there's been a number, as you can imagine, of inquiries into reparations and stolen generations, sorry, stolen wages, as, as well as stolen generations, and often the two classes overlap. The recognition of this intergenerational poverty means that it should not only be given to the workers themselves, but also their children and grandchildren And the debt owed is the debt owed to the family. So when they've looked at establishing schemes and there's been various types of schemes in New South Wales and and Queensland and Western Australia, some of them have and the more effective ones have compensated descendants But none of the schemes have actually compensated people who've worked in these corporations necessarily. So often it's government employees and the government has gone some way to pay them, only generally an ex gratia payment, which is a very small set amount to indemnify the government so they don't have any other liability. But for people, and this is many, I would say up to 200,000 Aboriginal workers who worked on cattle stations or, or before them in, in Perling, they worked for private employers who simply didn't pay them on the rationale that they were being provided for through shelter, which was generally this humpy made out of scraps of metal, and rations, which were usually meagre pieces of flour and other kind of, I guess, leftovers on the cattle station. So those workers are still waiting their compensation and they absolutely feel, especially because many of them are passing away and have much lower life expectancy, many of them feel that it is just for that money to go to their children and grandchildren
0: there are already reparation schemes that have been put into practice to some extent. I mean, what we're talking about when we're talking about things that were historically termed blackbirding is a form of what the British Empire instigated in relation to indenture with lots of populations.
2: That's right. So it's this form of kidnapping and then forcing the person into a dependent labour relation where they've got effectively no choice to to work or move anywhere else. And they're usually alienated from their home country. And this can also happen to Aboriginal people, although they're still in what we regard as Australia, they're moved from their homeland. So when Scott Morrison says there's no slave trade or there's no slavery, he's overlooking the types of relationships Aboriginal people have to land and how Moving them, you know, even if it's a few hundred kilometres, can be for them a form of dispossession. And what would happen, and we've seen evidence of this, that some of these workers would be branded. So they would effectively, in their skin, be signified as the property of a, of a cattle station owner or of a, as an employer So in all, I think, hallmarks, there were the features of slavery. And we see this, and I think it's really important to say that we also see this with many Aboriginal women. It wasn't just the men. Women were enslaved into homesteads and to work on fencing and work on the broader property infrastructure of the cattle station. So no-one was really spared, children and elderly included. And I think that the practice of blackbirding, the practices of slavery you know, very recent history and having people at the top like the Prime Minister send this message that it didn't exist, although obviously there are people at the critical margins who do, you know, unpack that and call it into question, but it has a huge effect on our national narrative and many people take what the Prime Minister says because obviously he is a leader for granted. So I think there's now a lot of work to do to try and reset the record again.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Thalia Anthony, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Technology in Sydney.
0: I took what you said before in relation to, you coupled the two things together, uh, stolen generations and stolen wages. And I I was reading part of your work um, where you talk about the Family is Culture Report in 2019, Um, just noted significant concerns about the use of police during uh, removals. Mm. And you said that when the police are used for removal in terms of child protection, especially riot police, special sort of militarised police, Mm. this has a historical continuity.
2: Yeah, it's often talked about both the stolen wages and the stolen generations as these historical artefacts and we've kind of moved on and we're a much more civilised country. The reality is, and this was documented especially in a film by Camillaro woman Larissa Berendt, recently, that police are still very actively involved in child removals and they will forcibly remove children and they will use weapons in the process and we've seen that I think in all jurisdictions but absolutely in the Northern Territory and Western Australia and other parts of Queensland and New South Wales. So I think that we, you know, and I I guess I can also be accused of this, we often talk about these things as though they're in the past and it undermines the continuities. And I could say the same also with stolen wages. There's a Commonwealth Development Programme on foot at the moment where Aboriginal people are forced to work into conditions that are very harsh just to receive their welfare payments. And these programs are set aside for Aboriginal people. So, Again, these discriminatory regimes are are being reproduced and maybe the language isn't a separate Aboriginal Protection Act, but the effect of these programs is to set aside certain practices for Aboriginal people. And we only have to look, for instance, at the Northern Territory intervention that required in 2007 the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act to show how discrimination is still very much alive in our policy. And the effect of that piece of legislation and policy in 2007 that still is on foot today is that their child removal and their youth detention and imprisonment rates have really gone up exponentially and there haven't been, you know, there were promises of of employment and there were promises of houses. There haven't been deliveries on those, I guess, benefits that were used to entice and coerce people into this racist policy. So I think we obviously have a lot of work to do for changing the historical record, but I think at the forefront should always be bringing a magnified glass to the current practices, which... With child protection, it's often with very little oversight, very little accountability. We might be getting more filming now of police practices of violence and harm. But what happens to Aboriginal children, it's much more difficult to call into question the disproportionate removal of children, which in Australia is 10 times the rate of non-Indigenous children.
0: Right. I think I've mentioned in another podcast, I commented on this, which I said that the Northern Territory intervention was incredibly problematic because in, in my personal view, using the military against a civilian population te- essentially makes people enemies of the state. Yeah. This issue, because I've worked alongside protection, but I haven't worked in the Northern Territory or, the West, or Western Australia or those contexts. But I know that in Victoria, it is a multidisciplinary response. This is from the Protecting Children Protocol, which often involves police and child protective services working together. So this is, just, this is Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of different voices that come into this. So, I mean, we've had Green Senator Lydia Thorpe talking about yeah. stop stealing our children. But we've also had the first female Aboriginal magistrate in West Australia, I think Sue Gordon, and she dismissed claims that child protection authorities are creating another stolen generation. Children aren't being removed because they're black. Children are being removed in these contexts because they're in danger.
2: So I guess my response with all respect to Sue Gordon, and I know obviously a trailblazer as a magistrate, I also think it should be noted that she was an advisor to very conservative prime ministers. So she doesn't completely stand outside of these political structures.
0: She is a conservative voice. So when we're juxtaposing them, we're taking... Lydia Thorpe's voice and Sue Gordon's voice, but she also does have direct experience with child protection matters.
2: Yeah, and I would say that there are absolutely aspects of her statement that ring true, and that is that the level of direct racism is not as apparent today. We have neutral welfare laws that apply universally. However, we also have systemic racism And systemic racism is unconscious, it's implicit, and it exists because of adherence to dominant values and adherence to certain stereotypes. And those values often presume that Aboriginal families, because of their structure or because of situations like poverty and housing, that they can't provide the same level of parenting as non aboriginal families. So that's a value judgment that's made every single day by, we have what's called Department of Family and Community Service, or Department of Justice or Department of Community Services, various names across the country. Yeah. That kind of value judgment is made every day when children are removed or when authorities choose to intervene with families. So we could say that Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are 10 times more neglectful of parents. But the reality is that all the evidence points to the opposite, that removing children creates the harm. Mm. So when we look at comparable cases, we see that Aboriginal children who are removed much more likely to suffer from mental health issues, to suffer from poverty, unemployment, low education, and also to get caught up in the youth justice and the adult prison system so the evidence suggests that removing children does not help their well-being and in fact harms them but what's even worse and we've seen this recently in the northern territory but it's much much more rife than that is that many of these children enter foster homes that abuse them and so the intergenerational trauma we often talk about is not only the removal but it's also going into families often well-paid foster families that physically sexually and emotionally abuse aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children so it seems that while the policy is not directed towards aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families the effect and the practices within those system target the families
1: you're listening to the deep trouble podcast Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Thalia Anthony, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Technology in Sydney.
0: With Child Protection Services, we're stuck, you know, and I think that this applies not only to Indigenous children, but to non-Indigenous children as well. We know that we don't necessarily get better outcomes by removing children from families, either in residential care, which is probably the worst case situation, or in foster care, even though there are some exceptional foster carers out there, we know that we don't get significantly better outcomes from doing that. So I wonder whether often, and I, when I'm reading this a lot, and I know I spoke about this with Dr. Anthony Dillon, who's a conservative voice around. <laughs> uh, you, you probably know <laughs> Anthony.
2: He's in touch uh, with me a bit. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, that's good because I was talking about the. Encouraging disagree people. with me. <laughs> yeah, encouraging people to talk to each other. You know, I think that's the. You know. Um, that's the key but I felt like sometimes when I read this do we conflate socioeconomic issues and with indigenous people we also have like this this destructive and pernicious history and effect of colonization with actual race do you know what Look, I, mean? I
2: think that, yeah there's absolutely a class element <laughs> to this it's not only First Nations families it's it's also parents who are poor, single mothers. Ironically, families and, and mothers who are experiencing family violence are also disproportionately engaged in child protection services. And even though the mother might be very strong and capable, the situation triggers interventions. So there are many intersections of disadvantage that are, I guess, within the risk factors that child protection identifies but i think with first nations families there's also this i guess different way of parenting that doesn't sit well with child protection they have expectations around having one home one bed one set of parents and when the child for example is also being cared by big sisters or aunties or grandmothers maybe even you know among a range of homes that adds to what risk factors child protection identifies. So I think that goes some way in explaining why they're so overrepresented in this system. And as much as, you know, we can say that the laws aren't explicitly discriminatory, we really have to ask the question, if they're being applied fairly, yeah. why are Aboriginal children being so disproportionately targeted and also why are they given so few rights to put their case forward so we know that they you know don't get quality legal representation they don't get to see all the evidence against them until the 11th hour it's not a level playing field and and it's really hard for disempowered families to come forward and defeat an archive of evidence that child protection present to them with the very few resources they have.
0: I mean, there's no doubt that some of this uh, is about race. You know, there's no denying that in certain maybe states and jurisdictions and there are cultures or there are certainly individuals that this plays out. But I mean, a lot of the things you're talking about there seem to me to strike of generational poverty are Aboriginal people in these remote communities, particularly where they're overrepresented with child protection removals, are they probably at the lowest level of generational poverty and the longest? I mean, is that possibly why we're seeing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it brings it back full circle to some extent where we started with practices of slavery and the Mm non-payment of wages. I mean, obviously in the first instance, they were dispossessed of their livelihood, their land, So everything that they depended on to survive was taken from them. And then they were pushed into jobs where they weren't paid any money often. And this went on for decades and decades. So we take everything from them and they're now forced to live in houses like in remote communities in the Northern Territory. Some of these homes have 16 or 18 people in them. Mm. And we put salt in the wound by saying, well, you don't have the resources to look after your children. It just seems like the obvious thing to do if they feel that everyone needs a home to look after children is to provide them with a home because they absolutely added to the profits of this nation through their work and to where this nation is today. It seems like the least we can do is to provide them the, I guess, infrastructure they need to bring up their children, as well as all the education and healthcare that also doesn't exist in these communities, rather than than take their children. But aside from that, I still, I legitimately feel that it's not only a practice of, I guess, targeting poor families. I also feel that, and I have worked with Grandmothers Against Removal in the past, and I'm currently working with Deadly Connections and Deadly Families, which is an awesome Aboriginal organisation in Sydney. So I have to say, I see what's happening on the ground and I come to this discussion with a certain proclivity towards the standpoint that's in favour of the position of families. But I feel that the fax workers in New South Wales who engage with families believe that white families can raise children better. So it's part of this assimilation mentality that if you're white, that you know how to bring up children that will fit in in white society. I don't think, again, it's conscious, but I think that their bias leads them towards an inclination that children will be better off if they have that white infrastructure in their upbringing
0: There's so much to talk about in that section there. I mean, there's so many things that I'm interested in. Fax workers. Who are fax workers?
2: Oh, sorry. We actually, we've changed the name again. It used to be Docs, and now
0: it's it's
2: Families and Community Services. And now they've actually merged with Justice. So it's actually just in the Justice Department because, ironically, we can see all the overlaps between criminal justice and child protection. So they've just merged them. And it's also happened in the Northern Territory, trying to bring together these mega departments to manage people, but especially Aboriginal people.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting, because I had talked with a filmmaker who worked in Arnhem Land, the Northern Territory, who had produced the films around Grandmothers Against Removals. The Um, interesting thing about this is, when you're talking about child protection, you know, like in the state of Victoria, at least I know in terms of the Child First legislation, And I've talked about this before, but the process was that if children were being removed from their family of origin with Indigenous families, that what should be sought next is an extended family. And then Mm. after that, a kinship family, and then failing that, an Aboriginal family outside the kinship group, and then Mm. failing that, finally, a non-Indigenous family. And when I spoke to Anthony Dillon, he said that that was potentially a dangerous practice because it put too many barriers between children being put into foster care homes, you know, more quickly. But I wonder if that differs between states, because it seemed like that was a good practice. There were problems because only anecdotally, I talked about this with Anthony, that Indigenous families, even extended families, didn't want to take the children because they felt like they were stealing children away from Mm. the family of origin. It's a complicated situation.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean I think most jurisdictions in Australia have the Indigenous placement principle, which is exactly that type of scaffolding start with you know immediate family and then slowly move down the chain. I'm not exactly sure how effectively it's implemented in Victoria. I know places like Queensland it's not implemented effectively at all. And again, because for instance, if you've got any criminal record, That often excludes you as a family member from taking the children into your foster care. And so there are reasons why people who would be good parents are excluded on other criteria. I mean, I I think that principle is important, but my first response is that there needs to be more resources to support immediate families. So in the system at large, about 80% of resources go towards the removal of the child and the support for the foster family. 20% of resources goes towards the family and restoring that family with the child in their care. And I think it needs to be reversed. 80% of resources needs to go towards strengthening the family and then 20% towards the placement. Because ultimately, if there's not supports, whether it's immediate family or extended family, and if there are biases put in place, then you're going to move very quickly from the immediate family to the non-Indigenous family. And we absolutely see that across the country in places like Queensland and New South Wales.
0: Certainly when years ago on the Working Family Services, that was the idea that the funding should be around keeping the children in the home with their parents, if possible. So all of the resources in terms of social workers, psychologists, departmental workers around trying to do this. But obviously the model we had wasn't like that. Mm. But I wonder if there's a danger if we absolutely conflate stolen generations from the past with child protection removals today whether that may be a dangerous thing for Indigenous children because there'll be this tendency to not remove Indigenous children and they'll stay in dangerous environments before we have the resources to be able to make sure that they're safe and okay and that vulnerable families are okay.
2: Yeah, I think when we look at the statistics, we can see that very few children are removed for abuse. Very small proportion in any state or territory the great majority of children are removed for neglect. So I don't think, you know, if you slow down the rate of removal, there's any risk of increasing abuse. In fact, I think what we're hearing are more stories of abuse in foster carers' homes rather than in family homes. So I do understand what you're saying. There needs to be a huge commitment shift before those resources, you know, 80-20 go into reverse. But... I feel we can do a lot more with supporting families that actually probably won't require that many resources. It's really about that shift in mentality where we support a model of self-determination For example, Aboriginal organisations need to be provided with the requisite funding to support families rather than child protection authorities, which have this long history, and you probably saw in my most recent article in The Conversation, where child removals were done very forcefully, including by the police. And that's created generations of trauma, and we're continuing that, and we need to really stop funding that model and look at a self-determination model where organisations who are embedded in the community, place-based, can provide more effective support. And that's how we undo some of this trauma, because I think, well, certainly of the Aboriginal families I've worked with and the stories I've heard, and many of these stories are documented in the Bringing Them Home report in 1997 by the Human Rights Commission, we know that as soon as child protection get involved it creates huge fear and anxiety for parents and they become hugely unsettled in that process that works against them when the department wants you to work in a certain way and be reasonable it's really hard to be reasonable when you've got such significant fear so if we shift the model and work with bodies that are trusted by families I think we can strengthen families, but also strengthen so many other aspects of the system. I truly believe that if we stop removing as many children, there'll be fewer kids in youth detention, and then there'd be fewer adults in prison. Child protection is a pathway to imprisonment. And as long as we keep increasing the Aboriginal kids removed, the trajectory is really one of increased imprisonment for many years to come.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Thalia Anthony, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Technology in Sydney.
0: I think we're, we agree on the same thing in terms of the way that child protection involvement should be you know, something that is the last resort or it should be becoming more and more rare. I'd be interested to see the stats around child removals because, I mean, in terms of my experience with Indigenous and non-Indigenous families and in residential care, children were only removed in situations. I mean, it depends on how you determine neglect as an aggregate, but children were removed in situations that would be unimaginable to most people in terms of physical and sexual abuse. In fact, I saw children stay in houses where I just couldn't understand why they would, uh, you know, why Mm. they weren't removed. Mm. So I'd be interested in that. I'd be very interested in that.
2: I mean, Mark, I think what you're doing here is connecting a lot of these dots. I mean, you know, we've spoken about slavery, we've spoken about land disposition, we've spoken about policing and the stolen generation or removal of Aboriginal children from families and the reality is that these are not really separate conversations, no. they do go hand in hand. I mean, my research very much looks at the colonial origins of a lot of these issues because as much as we might want to feel that we've had closure with an apology in 2008 from the federal government, the reality is until there's proper justice, that colonial history doesn't go away. And we spoke about reparations at the beginning, and. One aspect of reparations is not simply payment or apologies. It's actually ceasing the practice that has gone on in the past to move forward. And Kevin Rudd came out a year or so ago reflecting on the apology in 2008 that he made. And and he was hugely disappointed with the lack of progress and, in fact, the increasing removal of children So I think there are absolutely lots of conversations to have. And I think this is a really interesting time, firstly, because people are starting to mobilise around Black Lives Matter and First Nations Lives Matter. So we're really thinking about how the state, how corporations and how individuals engage with First Nations people as well as other institutions. But also we're seeing a government that is making certain aspersions about Aboriginal people and making certain claims about our history that are not true. So I think a lot of these conversations are being had because of this polarising Within society, a very kind of, well, I would say increasingly radicalised section of the population that are very concerned about First Nations lives, but then a very conservative, not so much response, but I would say um, platform being taken that is denying a lot of these mobilisations and, and the cause that underpins them.
0: Mm. Yeah. Are there any views that you hear? I mean, like we talked about Sue Gordon and you said, well, there are elements to what Sue Gordon says that I agree with. I think that was reasonable. I was thinking about this in regards to, well, in terms of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests and Indigenous Lives Matter protests. It seemed to me, I wonder, you know, we're looking at incarceration rate from something 1991 when the Royal Commission came in at 14% to now 28% for Indigenous people, predominantly men. Do we get this conversation wrong, though? Because, I mean, a lot of the focus has been, and even The Guardian came out and wrote a piece about this. In fact, I talked to Anthony about this, that Indigenous people now, according to, you know, the stats from the Institute of Criminology... Uh, if you standardise it to the population, so they're overrepresented in the prison population, they're less likely to die in prison than non Indigenous people. The real issue is the over incarceration of Indigenous people.
2: Yeah, and I've had a bit of an email correspondence about this with Anthony Dillon, and his position is well, prisons are safer for First Nations people. My response is that. If we look at every 100,000 First Nations people in the population, they're much more likely to die in prison than a non-Indigenous person because a First Nations person is they're approximately 2,000 for every 100,000 likely to be in prison, whereas a non-Indigenous person is only about 160 of every 100,000 people So their chance of ending up in prison is almost negligible compared to an Indigenous person. So it follows then that an Indigenous person's chance of dying in prison is also excessively greater than a non-Indigenous person. So my sentiment, and I speak to a lot of Aboriginal women in prison who are mothers and, and, you know, have children at home or in care, is that they simply shouldn't be there in the first place. Many of these women are there for minor crimes. Many of these women have gone into remand, have been denied bail without even having the opportunity to prepare a trial or to be convicted and sentenced. So I think if we look at this issue of incarceration, deaths in custody are the tip of the iceberg. There are so many harms that go into the lives of First Nations people outside of the issue of deaths in custody, including going back to the issue of children, including children being removed from parents, including children being traumatised by having their parents being locked up. And again, we know all the outcomes for children of incarcerated parents is sorely diminished as a result of incarceration. So I think that's the real issue that we're just simply incarcerating too many First Nations people on minor crimes for short sentences crimes like traffic offending crimes like public order offenses and offensive language that could be dealt with in other ways through other systems or simply through diversion so you know we have this big issue of incarceration that was at the forefront of the royal commission into aboriginal deaths in custody that also identify it as the key problem and yet since that royal commission in 91 we've doubled the rate, as you suggested. So I think that's the core issue we need to tackle as a nation.
0: You know, it seems incredibly problematic because I think across the criminal justice system, you could look at this in terms of Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in terms of where you would apply restorative justice and where people entering the criminal justice system becomes incredibly counterproductive. In terms of the rates, the death rates in custody, there's a few things in terms of crime. Indigenous people are disproportionately victims and offenders in homicide instances, both in relation to their relative proportion of the Australian population and in comparison with non-Indigenous people. In 2011, Indigenous people comprised 3% of the Australian population, yet constituted 13% of homicide victims and 11% of homicide offenders the rate was five times that of non-Indigenous people. Are we only worried about Indigenous deaths when it's in relation to a system, an institution and white people and we're not interested in Indigenous deaths when it's at the hands of of another Indigenous person? Because we we don't hear about these things very Mm. often. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, a few things to say about that. I agree that Indigenous victims, like many victims, are not treated at all well by the criminal justice system. I I think the criminal justice system is very focused on punishment and not the rights of victims, not the rights of victims in courts, not the rights of victims in terms of compensation or in terms of being able to provide greater direction on the sentence. And I think that failure for First Nations people really starts at the policing stage. Um, There's a lot of racism in investigations. We saw this with the Barraville murders in New South Wales of three young Aboriginal children and young people. So I do feel like the system's sorely tested and there needs to be more prominence for putting a name to those Aboriginal victims. So I don't say that we should only be concerned with the lives of First Nations people who die in custody. No, all their lives matter. Mm. But the other thing I wanted to say was that when we say that Aboriginal people die in, say, family violence or homicide, we can't assume that the perpetrator is Aboriginal. Many Aboriginal women are in relationships with non-Aboriginal men who die of homicide, but also... For instance, Aboriginal children, there have been key cases like Elijah Doherty and, you know, young boys in Northern Territory who have been killed at the hands of white men. And I think that we can't stereotype that these are just, you know, internal community matters and we really need to pick apart each one of these homicides and, you know, give them the full justice they deserve without kind of resorting to stereotypes that it's only at the hands of Aboriginal perpetrators, because we have a long history of assuming that Aboriginal people are are criminals. And that's been a really prominent stereotype. And it's very dangerous when we resort back to that.
0: I can quote your work with this in relation to the Bureau of Statistics. Um, Most Indigenous persons, 78.2% are in a couple with a non-Indigenous person. And this could indicate that many Indigenous women experience family violence at the hands of non-Indigenous men.
2: Yeah, and I think we need to do a lot more work on that. Down in Victoria, you've got some fantastic Aboriginal women working in the family violence space, and they affirm those statistics about non-Aboriginal male perpetrators. But I think supporting that type of work is really important because sometimes our criminology statistics... Remove, I guess, the narratives and the case studies behind the statistics. So, just to call out to Antoinette Fraibrook and everyone else who's kind of developing that, because family violence responses that are driven by Aboriginal organisations tend to be a lot more effective than than criminal justice involvement right from the get go. And we see, for instance, when police get involved, they tend to hand down apprehended violence orders or other types of orders not only on the man but also on the woman which can have a i guess unintended effect of incarcerating or criminalizing women as well so i think we need really specific community driven place-based responses rather than the failed criminal justice responses the norm in this setting
1: you're listening to the deep trouble podcast Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Thalia Anthony senior lecturer in law at the University of Technology in Sydney
0: I know you'd recently attended one of the black lives matter protests and I guess we've had comments from Greg Hunt and the chief medical officer Brendan Murphy whilst they recognize mm. in Victoria that you can't associate there I think there were four cases that were associated with the the movement both Greg Hunt and Brendan Murphy have come out and said, well, look, the example that it set in terms of mass gathering has led to a a sort of a relaxing (laughs) social distancing behaviour. So I wondered what you thought of that.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think many of the premiers and police commissioners were dissuading people from joining the protest. But Even though in Melbourne there were some people who were infected at the rally, there was no evidence of transmission. So it's interesting that their next resort was to focus on the message that's being sent about violating social distancing rules. It's funny, though. I mean, in many ways, the capacity to social distance and the safety of gathering outdoors is much greater than going shopping mm. and in addition people were mostly wearing masks and there was sanitizer being distributed and people were obviously deterred from coming if they were unwell so there were so many precautions put in place that you wouldn't have even say going to the football where you're allocated to a certain seat and you're going to shared bathrooms and shared eating places It seems like it's one of the safest. So I I do think there was a political message behind that and there was a dismissiveness around the politics of the gathering rather than it being based on health grounds. And nonetheless, the organisers in Melbourne made it very clear that deaths in custody is a health issue and we're not trying to diminish health outcomes. We're trying to enhance them by sending this message.
0: Well, I suppose was there a positive uh I guess in terms of uh, looking at the actual protests themselves, I mean, can we look to those protests and see that there's such a sense of solidarity now in terms of, uh, you know, the welfare of Indigenous people?
2: Yeah, I think there is absolutely a growing awakening and concern for the lives of First Nations people. I think the challenge is now to sustain that Because unfortunately, I went to the protest in Sydney on Sunday. It wasn't anywhere near as big as the first protest. It was still big. So I think it's about keeping people alive, not only to the issue, but to the importance of their contribution and their responsibility. Because everyone, I think, knows that something has to be done, but it's about mobilising people as well.
0: I suppose when I read your work, I got a sense that I had a misconception around what you and other academics in this field have meant when you've talked about systemic racism. So I wondered if you could explain that.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question about the nature of systemic racism, because it's often misconceived as something that people are conscious of and that is reflected in direct behaviours. But I think the features of systemic racism as well as the perils of systemic racism are that they are so underlying and often exist because of an adherence to dominant values that people aren't even aware of. So it can emerge, for example, in policing where certain groups of people are police not consciously because they belong to a minority, but because they exhibit behaviours that have been historically and currently condemned. So, for example, gathering, congregating in public are features that are associated with minority groups and police implicitly link them to risk factors that then affects how they're policed. And it's dangerous because it's hard to combat. So often people talk about the need for training or the need for safeguards, but if you're not actually aware that you're doing it, it's really hard to change those behaviours, especially when they're so endorsed by the culture at large. And we've seen, for example, with many police activities that have been harmful to First Nations children, especially young boys, that often you have groups of police bystanders allowing the harmful conduct to take place. And so it shows that it's entrenched deep in the culture and systemic racism, of course, is also something that operates through systems and institutions talking to one another. So, and we see this in deaths in custody, it's an adherence to values that may emerge in the police force but then are reinforced by the health profession. So, for example, if a person dies in custody, we can look at Ms Do or Auntie Tanya Day, there will be certain messages that are fed by the police officers to the health professionals who then reinforce those assumptions. And so both parties are giving, in these cases, A low standard of care, in some respects, a complete disregard for the life of the person, not because the individual may consciously disregard their life, but because these health bodies and these police professionals are sharing these values that the person might not be worthy of care because, for instance, they're intoxicated. And those types of assumptions can then taint how that person is treated and mistreated. And I think many people in the criminal justice system, as well as being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, also suffer from mental health issues, from poverty, often homelessness, a lack of education, a lack of employment opportunities. I think they all still converge on a history of colonialism that has denied Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people opportunities, but also, as we've spoken about, denied them wages for their work and so they've never been able to have the types of access to services and to care and support that is available to others in the community. So I think there is a convergence of of disadvantage but on the other side there's also a lack of care for First Nations people in custody. So investigation by The Guardian found that First Nations people were less likely to have care that involved officers following their own procedures prior to a death in custody than non-First Nations people. So it demonstrates that even when it comes to following their basic policies and procedures, there's a relative lack of care for Aboriginal people And I think that goes to the fact that their lives aren't seen as mattering in the same way. And that's why we say black lives matter because there needs to be a message that their lives cannot be treated as if they don't matter, which is systemically what occurs.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Thalia Anthony senior lecturer in law at the University of Technology in Sydney.
0: I did read in your book the statistics in terms of sentencing across states, and you make the distinction between positivist criminologists and post-colonial criminologists. And I suppose I thought to some extent the fact that there were very inconsistent differences in terms of sentencing and you know, in terms of length of sentence or severity of sentence for indigenous offenders, I thought the fact that there weren't any consistent differences in the meta-analysis to some extent, we could look at that and say, "Well, is that a positive thing that in fact, that there's much, much less bias going on than what we we may have implicitly thought?"
2: Mm. The way in which sentencing operates is that culpability, so someone's background and someone's circumstances should be a significant factor because it reflects their relative opportunities. So for example, if someone was well off and they stole, we would assume they're more culpable than someone who was poor and they stole because they don't have the same access. Mm. But we also in sentencing tend to provide more mitigation for disadvantaged people because harsh sentences won't send the same deterrence effect. So there's many reasons why First Nations people should be receiving lower sentences including I think because we need to redress the vast overrepresentation of First Nations people in custody so the fact that the I guess racism in sentencing is not as bad perhaps as what one might assume given the overrepresentation I think still reflects that there is a degree of racism because on all measures, we should actually be having much lower sentences for First Nations people, but they remain higher. And the other thing I would say is that when those studies are done about sentencing that conclude that there's not really as much racism, they look at factors like criminal history. And criminal history is laden with a narrative of policing. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tend to accumulate many offences, especially low-level offences, that would not otherwise be policed for other ethnic groups and certainly not white people. So I think we kind of need to look at how the courts interpret that data. And when I've spoken to Aboriginal women in New South Wales prisons, they've said, I've gone through recovery, I've rehabilitated, I've got my life together And the judge keeps on bringing back something that happened 15 years ago, and I keep being punished for that. So I'm punished for my criminal record as much as what I might have done recently, which might be quite minor. And so I think if we tell a story to ourselves that sentencing is fair or it's not too unfair, it overlooks all these factors and consequently means that the judiciary doesn't take responsibility and change its practices. And in Canada, where the Supreme Court recognises their responsibility in reducing overrepresentation, it sent a different message to the lower courts and they've been able to change their practices, not completely effectively, but at least it's indicating that the court has a job to do in redressing the overrepresentation.
0: I suppose I wondered if there were two issues that were going on here. States, maybe like the Northern Territory Western Australia, may have taken a really strong crime and punishment approach, and that has led to more people being picked up. And then at the level of sentencing, I wondered whether the sentencing was getting better, but the issue was a really strict, overly punitive model in terms of the justice system itself.
2: Look, I think you're right, Mark, in that the law and order agenda has really impacted on the types of crime that are being policed, the expanse of the police force. And we've seen this, especially in Victoria recently, it's tightened bail laws to mean that many people are in prison over 30% on remand, so they're not even sentenced So there's many other stages of the criminal justice system that are responsible outside of sentencing and even within sentencing judges would say they have less discretion now because they are, I guess, bound to guideline sentences or increase maximum sentences that the legislature have set down. So I think that's true. There is a lot going on with this law and order agenda that's very focused on criminalisation as a means of social control. Having said that, what I sought to do, especially in my book, Indigenous People, Crime and Punishment, was to show that the discourses of judges are increasingly denouncing Indigenous people and their communities and having a, I would say, prevailing approach that is risk-based and sees the communities they come from as a reason for aggravating a sentence, in other words, a reason for giving a tougher sentence to send a message to Aboriginal communities. Whereas, say, in the 1970s and early 80s, judges were much more, you could say, sympathetic to their circumstances and wanting for Aboriginal people to reconnect with their communities and regarded communities as a source of strength. Now, judges are conveying an attitude that people are not learning their lesson, they need to be sent to prison and that communities are a risk factor.
0: They're sort of treating community as a predisposing factor. Exactly. It seems like, though, there could be a combination between the qualitative and the positivist approach. Obviously, those two things can work together. I wonder whether it's a choice between post-colonial criminologists and positivist criminologists or people working together. Yeah, You know, because it seems like a part of your work, you know, you talk about community policing, but I wonder if some of the problem with the narrative of systemic racism is that attributes a negative value to people currently working in the system, you know, so like police, social workers, psychologists, but also like we've seen an article in the ABC about a pilot program of Aboriginal cadets, and I wonder if we just sort of create a very us-versus-them type narrative from doing that.
2: Yeah, that's a really rich question. Just to point to the first issue about positivism and quantitative analysis versus qualitative, I do see that there is a role in statistics and I think there are some amazing Aboriginal scholars like Maggie Walters who focuses on using statistics to tell a story that can be quite critical rather than just to uphold institutions. And I actually think statistics are really important for telling the story of systemic racism. It's through statistics we know that there is overrepresentation, not only in prison, but also in the policing of certain crimes like public order and traffic offending. So I think there absolutely is a role. And I think post-colonialism also has a role in the sense that we need to understand the language that is being used. And we can see this in the court's particularly because they have to record their remarks. I take quite a dialectical approach to my analysis. I'm interested in institutions and the data they produce, but I'm also interested in forms of analysis on the ground, including language, and I'm interested in resistance. I'm interested in how Aboriginal people both experience courts and prisons, but also the strengths they use to withstand those processes So I wouldn't say I fall sharply in one corner or the other, but I do absolutely recognise that positivism is implicated in telling stories about Aboriginal people that feeds into this notion that they are a risk. And I think that type of positivism has to be challenged because that's steeped in a history of colonial criminalisation of Aboriginal people, you know, since the frontier. So I think, yeah, we need to reflect on those methodologies, but on the point of the binary, the us and them, between say institutions, and I like how you in, <laughs> include in that mix what some Aboriginal people and communities would regard as care bears, those people who try and fix everything, the saviours, because I think they've got a lot to answer to. And, and many of those social workers work for child protection, you know, this, and as I'm sure many do. And so I think they also need to look in the mirror at their role in this process. But then when we come to the bridging the gap and what you say about cadets and how we can improve these institutions, I think that's a challenge. I think in this society, it's one we have to rise to. I think we need to look at many strategies for shifting the culture and improving relationships. And even though, for example, you've got at the moment the catch cry defunding police, a lot of that is about redirecting the police away from force and towards working with communities and there are absolutely models for that around the world but i think in addition to reorienting their role and their workforce we can't ever lose sight of the fact that there is still accountability that needs to be played out for justice to take place and that's a really important part of changing police or child protection workers With accountability, it sends a message to their workers and to the organisation and institution that they can't act with impunity, that they need to treat First Nations people fairly and with a high standard of care. And that's one of the main reasons why families who have had loved ones die in custody want charges, prosecutions and convictions. It's to say that we recognise responsibility on the part of the police or any other actors like health workers and that something will change. And that's part of doing justice. And once we allow there to be some responsibility, we can then, I think, come together to look at how we can build these institutions in a more productive way. But full admission, I do think social and structural relationships in the society need to change a lot more systemically if we're really going to combat systemic racism. But I think we should never be closed to any type of reform that improves relationships in the meantime
0: there's a reference in your work about decolonizing the system and i've heard that quite a lot mm. i've got a friend who's written his thesis about this to some extent but i'm still not sure what that looks like
2: yeah and look when decolonization was first from what i understand talked about it was really about decolonizing the minds and the practices of people within colonies that were being emancipated after World War II. So in Africa, for example, there was a view that the local people had adopted the mindset of the colonialists and they needed to go back to more communal ways of working that weren't so institutionalised. And then it's been used much more broadly now including in the academy, to think through what it means to take away the white privilege of the institution and of academic work. And I think a key feature of that is working with Indigenous communities and doing that in a way where it's not simply engaging them as participants, but it's enabling them to direct the work of researchers according to their needs and to benefit from their research. So to be leaders in the research, along with academics and institutions. So self-determination is a really pivotal part of it, as well as undoing a lot of the colonial assumptions that are within our institutions, including positivist assumptions about how we treat knowledge and how we value for example statistics over storytelling
0: i was wondering where community policing fitted into that it seems as though community policing is a part of all of that because i was reading about the history of community policing in the united states and there's a thing called the broken windows approach oh yeah Um, have you heard of that
2: yeah Yeah, I mean, my understanding of Broken Windows is that it's quite related to tough on crime and the police force Mm. still.
0: Yeah, this is where community policing was brought in. So just in terms of the context, in 1965 there was the Watts Rebellion over police brutality, and this led to sort of a, a paradigm shift in the 1980s, an American police force. And there was a balance between these two models of policing, which was broken windows, which I think is the one that's harsh on punishment and then the problem-solving one where police work within communities. And then Barack Obama, uh, his task force of the 21st century, issued recommendations for police departments nationally to address police murders that had originally sparked the Black Lives Matter protests Key component of that was community policing. And then the Trump administration actually undid a lot of those reforms. Uh, the criticism is that if you're working with communities from the problem-solving perspective, is that communities are not homogenous, that there are multiple different cultures within a community. And then how do you meet the interests of all of the different groups and actors within different communities?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think I come back to the relationship building aspect of policing, because when you build relationships, you become familiar with the circumstances and the needs of people within that local community. So the one size fits all model violates that trust and it tends to superimpose crimes that are not responsive to what is needed to stop those crimes and to improve safety. So For example, in the Northern Territory, when they had in 2007 an intervention that involved a surge in police numbers in remote communities, the police were doing their bread and butter work like policing cars and many people in communities didn't have access to registration or licensing services so they were constantly being pulled up for these types of offences and actually ending up in courts and jails for them. Whereas if you had a police model that said, well, why doesn't the police and other services work with community to get their licence, to get their registration as a means to solve the problem, rather than just meeting targets around police charges and police searches that would be a far more effective means of enhancing driver safety and reducing crimes. But like I said, many of the orders come from above and many of the police officers don't last long in communities. So relationships constantly need to be rebuilt and the community is very much dependent on the goodwill or otherwise of the officer at the time.
0: I guess when I think about from a psychological perspective, the good thing about all of this seems to be that it, the idea is to try and break down in group, out group differences. You know, that the community policing can work in conjunction with the police and maybe the police change their models to some extent to more of a problem solving approach. I think more of a, it sounds more like a social work approach, an element to policing.
2: That's right. It would be good if they did change their focus from just cracking down on crime, so to speak. But I also think that there is a real role to be played by the government in terms of redirecting resources. So the police tend to be on the front line with mental health issues, but they really shouldn't be. They're not trained and they often escalate the mental health issue when they engage with someone. So it would be much better for the state to look at having more health workers or preventative resources, you know, supports, for instance, in the community for people with mental health problems rather than expecting the police to do that frontline work. So I think it is a matter of police being better. I wouldn't just say trained, but actually focused in their role to that being of support rather than just opposition, because it's kind of seen that they're the state and everyone else is a, a potential criminal, but rather that there are alliances built. But I also think resources need to be directed to more support services rather than expecting the police to perform that role
0: one of the criticisms of community policing that i've read is it extends policing into the domain of society and actually extends policing rather than containing it. i don't know what you think of that.
2: Yeah, i think there's been an absolute widening in the function of the police especially as there's been a divestment in services like mental health services but also housing for instance. and so it's then the police's role to go and so-called clean up the streets. Whereas really, if we had proper health supports, if we had proper public and social housing, the police would never have to fulfil these roles. And so they have really, I guess, filled the gap that the government's created in social services. And I think they've filled it in a way that has made society a lot more fearful and a lot less communitarian because the message of the government is we won't provide for social good, but we will have the police punish individuals where they're not able to follow the rules.
0: Professor Thalia Anthony, thank you.
1: And there was a absolutely fascinating conversation, I thought. Mark, as I said earlier, Professor Thalia Anthony takes a very different approach to Indigenous affairs than, say, Anthony Dillon, who you interviewed last week. Professor
0: Anthony is coming from a perspective of post-colonial studies, and that's what this is about. And it's more around, like I think she talks about, getting the court remarks of judges and essentially looking at the the way that judges regardless of sentencing if there's no difference in sentencing what judges are saying about Indigenous people as they sentence them and and also what they're saying about Indigenous communities. There's a very very important part in this that was one of the most important parts in the interview which is we talked about that there's not really any kind of consistent finding that Indigenous people in fact receive severer sentences than non-Indigenous people. And we also have things like Aboriginal court and curry court. So, but Thali was saying that, in fact, Aboriginal people, because of their current disadvantage and also because of the history of colonisation which has led and shaped that current disadvantage, should actually get reduced sentences for the same crimes as non-Indigenous people.
1: A two-tiered justice system. That's what she's basically wanting.
0: Yes, possibly. There's a principle in that which is important. We do that with lots of things. So... The way the justice system is already set up is that you look for mitigating factors. And she uses the example, you know, if someone steals and they come from a reasonably good background and there's no reason to say that they were disadvantaged enough to warrant stealing, you would take that into account in sentencing. That's why we have drug and alcohol courts and they're also trialing gambling courts in South Australia, I think, for people with problem gambling issues, because we recognize that there are mitigating factors like disadvantage and addiction. There are hours and hours of discussion around this. I mean, how do you then calculate that? How do you then calculate the effects of colonisation and adjust that into a sentence so that you can reduce the sentence accordingly? How does that work exactly? How do you explain that to people? You kind of have to bring a narrative to people to explain that. That there's a difference, you know, and why the difference is occurring and people have to come along. But the principle of that is part of a, a utilitarian principle that when you recognise disadvantage, you actually, yes, try to ameliorate it. And that's where that's coming from. But that to me seems to be very, very, very complicated. All right.
1: yeah. Well, as I said before, it's a, a really rich subject and we mm. could talk for a very long time about a lot of the issues that are raised in this interview but it's time to talk about next week's show, but rather than repeat ourselves, I'll play that portion of the interview between Mark and myself, where we talk about the upcoming episode, which we recorded about a month ago. All right then. Okay. Well, we'll move on to next week's interview yes. with Joe Huston, the Chief yes. Financial Officer of Give Directly a very different sort of topic. He has a very interesting approach to charitable donations. Could you outline it, Mark?
0: GiveDirectly is one of the organisations listed by GiveWell and Peter Singer's organisation, Life You Can Save, because it's uh, considered to be effective in its altruism. So GiveDirectly provides a version of basic universal income to villages in places like Uganda. To see if this will improve things like food security and essentially just quality of life.
1: So, another important and interesting episode next week when Dr. Mark Halloran interviews Joe Huston, Chief Financial Officer of Give Directly, here on Deep Trouble on 94.9 Main FM. Mm-hmm.
0: Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. The Deep Trouble podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at TroubleMag.com. Thanks for listening.